0: with our capability and the voices with which God has blessed us, the ability that we have to use them to form words and to match them to notes and to sing tunes with them. What a blessing it is to be able to sing praises unto God and to appreciate the wonderful gift that He's given us to exalt His name in that fashion and in that way. As we gather together this evening in a continuation of our studies in the Gospel according to John, we again have been promoted or prompted I should say with regard to that study by virtue of our youngsters as they continue to prepare for the Bible bowl effort coming up here in just a few weeks now. Our studies in the book of John have reminded us so often about truly the gift that has been given unto us. Wasn't it Paul who affirmed in 2 Corinthians 9:15 thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift? And as we study John perhaps in the lesson tonight we'll begin in earnest to look at just a few of those marvelous and, in in a way, breathtaking scenes that surrounded the nature of the Lord's final hours in His life here in the flesh. Just to remind us of some of the things that we have seen throughout our study to this point, in John 1, verse 1, all the way to the ending of chapter 17, we have been reminded time and again that this gospel account was written a bit later than the others, and hence was able to address very clearly just a few of the falsehoods that had arisen in the intervening years since Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been penned. And as John drove home the point that our Savior did come in the flesh, He truly is the way, the truth, and the life, John fourteen six. There is no way into the Father but through Him. As those matters have been presented, we've been reminded of truly how blessed we are in this era, to be able to have a mediator that Job never had. In Job 9.33, Job cried for a dazeman between him and God, someone to plead his cause in his case. But Job did not have what you and I are blessed with, the mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus our Lord, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Those thoughts lead us then this evening to the 18th chapter of the book of John. I'd invite you to turn there with me, Just a few moments ago, Brother Jason read for us from the 38th verse of that chapter, but as we build up to that point, we have some rather amazing things to consider. We understand the central figure that Jesus was. Isn't it the case that in fact God had providentially prepared the affairs of time to come to the very events that we are about to study and to look so interestingly at this evening? In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. To quote Galatians 4, verse 4, from the time in Genesis 3:15, Adam and Eve had brought sin into the world by disobeying the command of God. God had in mind the plan by which the human family could be saved from sin. It would require the sacrifice, an appropriate one at that involving blood. And so it is tonight that we reach the 18th chapter of the book of John. As we begin to look at just a few of the things contained in that chapter, we will cast the spotlight as we do so upon some of the significant things among those that we could name, but we will particularly begin in this way. On many occasions throughout the book of John especially, the Lord had made statements that mine hour has not yet come. But as we noted somewhat briefly this morning, the hour is now virtually upon Him. As we studied today... We had already reached virtually the midnight hour of that Thursday night. And now as we see the hours of this Friday morning quickly pass away, our Savior's crucifixion looms ever so near. In what state of affairs do we find then these final hours of the Lord's life? In what way did He direct them? What did others do to Him? And in what way did He react? All of that will be a rather timeless lesson for us as you begin to look at some of the things about it. Chapter 18, verses 1 and 2 begin like this. We well remember that the affairs of the intercessory prayer in John 17 are now over. They either were on the way toward Gethsemane, or perhaps those things had taken place shortly right before he left. But now they had crossed the Kidron Valley. If you can picture, if you will, looking eastward from the city of Jerusalem, We remember there the mountain on which the temple was built that Solomon had constructed a thousand years earlier. Across that Kidron Valley was a hillside, and you and I know it as the Mount of Olives. It was a very touching place, and situated upon that mountain, a hill if you please, in a specific garden-like arena was that garden that we recognize as Gethsemane. Our Savior frequently attended this place. It would seem to have been a place that was very comforting to him and so it was this night the savior departed jerusalem and its direct environs and proceeded to this mount of olives this place of the garden of gethsemane it was upon reaching this place that some of the other gospel accounts fill in some rather notable details john chose not to share them with us in his gospel account the others had already recorded them. It was here that the Savior first asked the majority of the apostles to remain. He took Peter, James, and John and went a little further and then asked them to wait, to tarry, while he went just a little bit farther and prayed so earnestly. Did he not pray three times, O oh, my Father, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Matthew 26, verses 39 to 42. The Savior, in fact, was in such earnestness and prayer that Luke reminds us that it sweat, if you will, were, as it were, great drops of blood. We can appreciate, thus, the mental strain that was now enveloping our Savior. He well knew what was about to trespass and to come into, in fact, His existence. The affairs, of course, proceed in manner like this. While there in that garden, as the Savior returned to the apostles, he found them sleeping, of course. And on one occasion, he asked, "'Could you not tarry with me for an hour?' Isn't it amazing that finally, after the third return and found them still asleep, he said, "'The time has now come.'" And there it was, this band of soldiers and officers, along with Judas, who in fact had come and in fact planted a kiss upon our Savior. And that betrayal kiss, identified, of course, in the dark it was, which one was the Savior. And as he was identified immediately, the officers, upon asking who he was, upon Jesus saying, I am he, I am the one that you seek, they went back where the text says and fell to the ground. That's a rather majestic consideration, isn't it? And at that point, the Lord immediately intervened. I am the one you seek. Let these go their way. At that point, we can readily notice Peter's interest. For in his desire to defend his master, he drew his sword and cut off the right ear of one of the high priest's servants, whose name was Malchus. The Lord rather quickly rebuked Peter, Put thy sheaf back into its place. And as he put the sword into its place... We well remember and recognize an account of John that they now bound our Savior. He was in fact treated on this occasion as a common criminal. They bound him and led him away to Annas. Annas, we find rather interestingly, poses a rather odd sort of considerations. He was not the high priest according to the account of John. Rather, he was the father-in-law of the high priest We will, however, learn from our study of the gospel accounts that the Jews quite likely still had great respect for Annas. He had been the former high priest, but the Roman officials had removed him. And given the Jewish disdain for the Roman officials, they likely still gave great credence and great respect to the proclamations of Annas. They led Jesus to this place then where, in fact, he had a preliminary trial before Annas. It is interesting to notice a few of the things that transpired in this preliminary trial. For interestingly enough, almost all of the apostles had fled. Jesus had quoted the prophecy of Zechariah that that would take place. And sure enough, it had in Mark fourteen fifty, only at a distance it would seem did Peter and John follow along. As the particulars of this trial took place, first of all, the Lord was asked... What about your disciples and what about your teaching or your doctrine? Here was the Son of God on trial on this preliminary way. As these Jewish officials ask about these matters, some of the Lord's answers did not sit well, especially with the words that were directed toward the high priest. And thus the Lord was slapped in the face. One of those servants that stood by couldn't believe that Jesus had the audacity to speak that way in regard and answer to the question that Annas had asked him. But rather, we notice in addition to all of that, it was here, of course, that in this very tribunal or the place that this took place, it was Peter who not once, not twice, but thrice he denied knowing his Savior. And isn't it the same Peter who, not more than around three hours earlier, said, "'Lord, I will die for your cause.'" And now he refused to even acknowledge that he knew him. It is a remarkable lesson for us to ever be aware from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Take heed lest you fall. As we contemplate the degree to which Peter had now come, we are now reminiscent, of course, of the fact that the Lord's night in many ways had just begun. We aren't told explicitly how long this preliminary trial took. We have already seen that some of the treatment was beneath proper law. No person should be treated the way the Lord did on this occasion, conducting a trial shortly after midnight. What legal right did they have to perform any such thing at that hour from a a completely legal fashion? But then we notice that following these matters, the Lord was still bound And now they, in fact, brought him before Caiaphas, who was the Romanly official high priest of that time and of that day. On this occasion, that Sanhedrin court, of course, along with the high priest, was there assembled. This was that Jewish court that, from the history and the legacy of the Old Testament, had the prerogative of making decrees that were respected among the Jews. The high priest and those therein gathered thus heard various and sundry things about Jesus. Again, John chooses not to share it with us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but the other gospel accounts do. And we first of all learn they had false witnesses to come before them, make up stories and share things that they had seen or heard relative to Christ. And Matthew quickly informs us that their testimonies did not agree, clearly evincing the fact that they were false witnesses. However, finally, one individual made recollection. He said that, in fact, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days, recollecting what the Lord had uttered in John, the second chapter. It was upon that charge and the statements that Jesus made that they finally brought the charge of blasphemy against him. And in Matthew 26, verse 66, after again rather humiliating treatment, insulting, reviled treatment we find that they eventually proclaim him guilty of blasphemy, which from their perspective and in their mind was punishable by death. There was only one problem, however. The problem, of course, the Romans did not permit the Jews the right of execution. That was solely a Roman matter. And these Jews, though they could sentence someone to that could not carry it out themselves. Hence... They were in need of a Roman to intervene and to finally make the final sentence so that he could in fact be put to death and that he could be executed. These hearings that had taken place again in the wee hours of Friday morning had taken place in many ways without the complete and final recognition of what would be a law setting. The Sanhedrin meeting at this hour of the morning, the character of their verdict being brought forth in this way, And might we remember that under the Old Testament regime, the law of Moses demanded, did it not, that there had to be at least two witnesses, and furthermore, that the witnesses were to be those that cast the first stones. We shall find many things that shall go awry in the prosecution of this case. But might we consider some of the next things that John reveals to us? They led Jesus, you see, from this place before Caiaphas, now to a Roman official who they needed to provide the final sentence of execution, and who they could, in fact, twist into giving the decree that they desired and that they wished. By now, we have reached the early morning hour shortly before dawn. Again, John does not give us the explicit hour of the day. He just says it's shortly before dawn, perhaps 5 o'clock, maybe a few minutes before 6 o'clock. We just don't know. But had it not been a harrowing night for Jesus, attempting to defend himself before Annas, before Caiaphas, before the mobs that were gathered along, before the Sanhedrin court and the council that it bore, as Jesus had done all of that, knowing also that the apostles had fled again with the exception of the two from a distance, it is to be noted it wasn't he alone. Wasn't he for all practical purposes standing alone? with the sins of the world shortly to be cast upon him. The thoughts and the characteristics to be seen now with regard to Pilate only deepen our interest in the matters. For sure enough, now early that morning, they bring Jesus to the Roman proconsul, to the Roman governor whose name was Pilate. Pilate had been put in place by the emperor in in Rome itself, and as he had the jurisdiction of this area, it was he before whom the case was brought. Thus, as we find John giving us some details about this, which neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke choose to do, we quickly find that Pilate rather immediately discovered something interesting about this case. In Pilate's estimation, this was not a case that had anything to do with Roman law. This was a merely Jewish matter, and they need to attend to it. And that's what Pilate told them. This has nothing to do with Rome. It has nothing to do with me. It is your problem. It has to do with your religion. You need to deal with it. Obviously, that was not the words that the Jewish accusers wished to hear. They needed a sentence from him of execution in order to get rid of this man. For they had no authority to execute him on their own. Isn't it interesting to appreciate some of the things that began to take place? Pilate proceeded to conduct a private hearing of Jesus. He took Jesus into the inner sanctum and began to directly ask Him some leading questions. For instance, questions dealing with His kingdom, questions dealing with the nature of the doctrine which He taught, questions that related to the character of His dealings with those Jews who were His accusers. In the concourse of those discussions, Jesus made reference to His kingship, For when he spoke about his kingdom, he directly said, My kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. That so encapsulated Pilate that Pilate then chose to ask in regard to the truth to which the Lord referred. And Jesus made the statement, It is for that cause I was born, and for that cause came I into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. No wonder the Lord had said not many chapters before, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No Christ, no truth. No Jesus, no truth. It is to be noted then that as Jesus made those statements to him, it was directly on that occasion that verse number 38 then comes again before us. It is such a telling statement. In verse number 38, we said, we noticed that Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him... No fault at all. And there comes the title of the lesson tonight. In the estimation and in the perception of this Roman official, he said, after scrutiny, after consideration of the case, after directly interviewing the one accused, I find in him no fault at all. He was not worthy of death. He, in fact, was not one who should have been sentenced to die. And it's very clear at this point that Pilate knew it. Thus, he was in a very difficult situation, at least in one sense, but in another he was not. We all understand that from a perspective of law, an innocent man should go free. A person for whom the evidence has not led to conviction should be allowed to be set free. However, Pilate was rather weak, wasn't he? In terms of his capabilities... In terms of the position he occupied, he was unwilling to make the decision that ought to have been made. And thus, he wished to pacify the Jews. He knew this was a rabble-rousing crowd. He knew it was a troublesome multitude, and they were always causing problems in the kingdom. And if the emperor is to look upon me favorably, I need to quelch this matter once and for all. And hence, he was unwilling to let the Savior go. He chose or tried to find a path of lesser resistance to pacify them and also to ease his conscience with respect to this man Jesus whom he knew to be innocent. The facts then that proceed before us take us into the 19th chapter of the book of John. It is with respect to that 19th chapter that we rather quickly find that the Lord now is increasing in the matter of of the suffering and experience that was placed upon him. Verse number one of chapter 19 then reads, then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. It's a rather fascinating thing, isn't it? When you and I know how much we love the Savior and we contemplate what he did for us and to at least in our minds eye picture what these hours were actually like. Here was the immaculate, pristine, sinless, guileless Son of God, who in fact here was on trial, though the fact he'd never committed any errors, no sins, no crimes of any type. And now we notice that when Pilate did offer them the opportunity to ease himself out of this situation, he knew that each year it was the tradition to release unto them some prisoner It just so happened at this time, there was a rather well-known, notable, and famous prisoner in in the prison house, and his name was Barabbas. He was an insurrectionist, he was a robber, and he had, in fact, contributed to murder. He was well-known for the fact he was an insurrectionist, and the Jews loved anybody who would cause insurrection against Rome. Under most instances, they didn't like the Romans. Under most instances, they wished the Romans to leave their province and let them rule their own affairs. However, on this occasion, they wished to make friends with Rome because they thought they could eliminate the Savior that way. Thus, they cried, Give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Release Barabbas. Pilate no doubt wanted them to say, Give us Jesus, for it would have given him a perfect way out. He, after all, could have known the fact that the Lord was innocent, but they could have been pacified after he'd punished Jesus. But it was not to be. Thus, we notice that Pilate, in verse 1 of chapter 19, committed the Savior to be scourged. Scourged? What is scourging? And what does that involve, given the fact that he'd already said, I find in him no fault at all? Pilate was now committing an innocent man to be punished. Thus, we quickly gain an impression of the kind of man Pilate was. No regard for law. He was more concerned about his position. How does he say face? Son of God committed to scourging. To scourge was a rather merciless whipping, a rather merciless beating. It was such that the individual had his arms, uh, I should say his hands tied, in such a fashion that he certainly wasn't free to move in any way easily. But not only were the hands tied, he was in fact draped over some particular item or object that would expose to tension the skin of his back and the flesh thereof. You can imagine if a person were leaned over, say, a little hitching post we might have seen in the old-time movies, that's quite often like something that would have taken place. And then, a Roman soldier... A rather hefty man, needless to say, one who in the parlance of today was well worked out, rather muscular, and taking a whip. He would then beat, and beat, and beat this person who was before him. Again, quite often the person was beaten to the point of virtual death even then. You can imagine with the skin stretched so tightly, the very first lash of course, opened the skin, evincing the flesh beneath it. And here was this person unable to do anything but simply take it. The cries and the wailing simply only increased the matter as one imagines the agony and the anguish with each increasing lash that was placed upon it. Most of the time, the whip was not simply a one cord whip, usually, it had at least three lashes or cords within it. And each one of them were such that typically again there were objects that were rather hard tied in the ends of them. Perhaps pieces of rock, sometimes pieces of metal, other times other sharper objects. And again with each lash the person's skin was laid open and the blood would gush forth. Until the time the person was finished in, in every realistic way, you could describe it as simply a, a tangled mess of blood and flesh. We might well remember under Jewish law, the Old Testament law of Moses, 39 lashes, I should say 40 lashes, were all that was permitted. Remember, this was a Roman beating. There was no restriction on the number of lashes. We don't know how many times our Savior was beaten. 50, 100, we just do not know. We do know this much that apparently he had lost a sufficient amount of blood that when all the carnage was over, when all the event was over and they finally laid the cross on him, he buckled beneath the load of it. Our Savior, in fact, had reached the point of weakness to that extent. It is a recognized fact of these events, and secular history testifies to it as well, that there were times when those who were scourged actually never lived until the end of it. They lost their life, having lost so much blood in the actual beating. Our Savior was scourged, my friend. Can we not easily recall the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, the suffering servant text, the most famous likely in Isaiah? For he was beaten for our causes and for our state of affairs. With his stripes we are healed, he would say in verse 4 of that chapter. Peter echoed that same refrain, didn't he, in First Peter chapter 2? Though no guile was in his mouth, nonetheless his body was hanged on the tree. And in so doing, he serves as an example in terms of the way he dealt with this, even for you and me still today. In the scourging, no doubt, Pilate hoped to pacify one more time these agitated Jews. They had desired, you see, this one's cause to be taken. They were unwilling for him to be released. They chose Barabbas instead. Now perhaps after I whip this man and beat him, maybe they will now allow him to be released. But it still was not to be. Look with me in John the 19th chapter if you would. Beginning in verse number 3, the text reads, Hail, king of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again, and saith unto them, Behold, I bring forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. After scourging this man, this man Jesus, we notice in verses 2 and following that a crown of thorns by those soldiers had now been plaited and placed upon his head, mocking him as a king. He had said that he's a king. Let me show you what kind of king he is. And these Roman soldiers, again, with complete authority of Pilate, acted toward this way with regard to him. And notice they took a purple robe and placed it upon him. Purple, of course, is the robe of kings. It's the color of those in regal position and royal occupation. This was, of course, done in mockery. Here's the kind of king you Jews have. Look at him. You bring him to me for me to hear his cause and look... I've scourged him and he's able to do nothing in response with a purple robe now upon him. This crown of thorns upon his head and so the blood now pouring forth from his back and from his head as well. We can now appreciate verses 4 through 6 that tells us Pilate again brings him forth and testifies one more time. I find no fault in him. What do you suppose the court systems of today would do if the officials, though the man was innocent and they punished him like this, they treated him like this? And may we never forget that this is the Son of God. With the slightest spoke of a word, he could have brought this world to an end. He could have killed every one of them there. He could have taken them into eternity with a mere look and a glance of his eyes. And our Savior, with no fault at all, took all of it. He endured it, He bore beneath it, and do we not sometimes note, He bore it all, and indeed He did. As the events of this morning, that Friday morning of the Passover week, as its events proceed onward, we notice in verse 5 that they did bring Jesus forth, and Pilate made the pronouncement, Behold the man. By this point, we can imagine Jesus there, perhaps in a place that all of them could see Him, Behold the man, here's your your man, here's the one that had taught and preached and the one who had done various and sundry miracles and the one who had had such impact on apparently so many. Here's your man, behold the man, verse number 5 informs us. With that man before them, note the chief priests and their hungry appetite in verse number 6. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! You'll notice I did not use the word him because the King James translators, in fact, supplied that word. The Greek text and the Greek verb is only crucify. The blood, if you will, in a figurative fashion, dripping from their lips, they weren't satisfied with the scourging and they weren't satisfied with the mockery. The derision, the insults, the reviling just did not satisfy, crucify. Crucify, and notice that they cried this out. Pilate was now in a position, he had to make a decision. He had to make a final decree. Will I bend to the evil desire of these with regard to this man who is not guilty? Or will I, in fact, reign in the recognition of what I know to be true and release him? It is to be noted in verses 7 and following, we find that Pilate does make one final decree. He makes one final approach. He makes one final consideration. As you look at some of the latter things that we'll notice on this next slide, at this point again, Pilate finds himself in a very difficult position. A message was revealed to Pilate. Again, John chooses not to convey that to us in his inspired writing, but Matthew does. You see, Pilate's wife had seen in a dream have nothing to do with this man, have nothing to do with him. And here it was, Pilate thus brought in a basin of water and washed his hands and turned the matter over to these Jews. Isn't it interesting to note the weakness of Pilate and the character that he chose to exhibit toward what was his jurisdiction? It was he who should have made the decision relative to the innocence of the man and what should happen with regard to it. But he chose not to do that. He brought Jesus in one more time for a personal interview, a personal consideration. He again asked Jesus some questions. The Lord at first gave him very little attention, did not even say a word in response, and maybe you and I can now gain a greater understanding of why. The Lord was, as the writer in Isaiah had pointed out, as that lamb dumb before its shearers. No wonder the Lord had such little respect for Pilate. He being innocent and yet having been treated this way, he being innocent and yet scourged and treated by these Roman soldiers and officials in this manner, But Jesus did finally respond. Notice in verse number 12. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. We can easily see that here these Jews, who under normal circumstances were no friends of Caesar, and yet they chose that to use as a tool, a ploy, to encourage Pilate to commit Jesus to be crucified. In the final analysis, verses 13 to 16 of chapter 19, read as follows. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement. But in the Hebrew, it's Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. John finally does give us another indication of the time. Our last reference to that had been shortly before dawn, and now we notice approximately three hours have now elapsed. It's the sixth hour, we're told in verse 14, that brings us to the character of of what time it was. As we consider the events of this hour, and the events that are now transpiring before our reading, does it not touch the very core of our being? the character of what we're able to see, the understanding of what it was that now took place, the Son of God's treatment, and admittedly, we have not drawn in all we could for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but certainly the nine hours from the midnight hour, or rather from the 9 p.m. hour the previous night, all the way until this hour has been incredibly touching. The Son of God endured all of this. The very one who was called Emmanuel in Matthew 1.23, God in the flesh, God with us, endured all of this. We ought never to forget in Matthew 26, Jesus had said, I could call twelve legions of angels and have myself released. This was all voluntary on his part. They didn't force him, those chains or those cords that bound him, he could have broken them with the slightest effort. Because you see, he was God in the flesh. And yet all of this he endured. All the while, there was no fault in him. All the while, he was the one doing it for the very ones who were doing this to him. Isn't that maybe the greatest irony? That man who whipped his back so mercilessly, Jesus died for that man. That Roman soldier that is going to study in the next Sunday that took that spear and rammed it into his side, Jesus died for that man. You and me, who don't act the way we ought to, He died for me, and He died for you. He did so so that you and I can go to heaven. He did so so that our sins can be forgiven. He did so so that we can enjoy forever with Him. You see, He did all of that not for Himself. He didn't have any sin. He did that for everybody else. He did it for me and for you and all these others that we've listed along the way for that high priest, and even for Pilate who was so weak, Jesus died for him that he might come to his senses, recognize the truth, and respond to it. Friend, if you need to respond to it tonight, there could be no better night than this one. Jesus died for you. He shed his blood for you. That blood that, in fact, was the very character of eternal life itself, he shed it for you. No wonder the gospel invitation is extended 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We know that there are these convenient times that we come together, and certainly this is an opportune time, but if at any time, day or night, one of the elders or myself could be of assistance to speak with you, talk with you, encourage you in regard to obedience or assist in that, it would be no problem at all. In fact, it would be an honor, and it would be a great blessing for you in order to effect that as soon as possible. But tonight, but this is an appropriate time, and it's a perfectly fitting time, as we come together and consider, in fact, the Lord's Supper, as we're about to do shortly. And as we consider the whole thrust of what it means to be a Christian, we notice again that Jesus did all of this for you and for me. May we be eternally thankful. May we be unendingly grateful. And thus may we give our life in complete submission to the one who died for us. If you need to do that tonight by becoming a Christian, c- culminating with the act of baptism, we could in fact take, make certain to, to do that ever so quickly. If though you have become a Christian but wandered away from your first love, you maybe have forgotten the intensity of these readings, what it was that the Lord did for you and me. Why not come back to that first love tonight? If it's been a public matter, things others know about, they need to know of your repentance. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. Reads James 5, verse 16. And tonight, if we could be of assistance to you, don't delay. Don't give Satan another moment of your life. Obey now while together we stand and sing.